Well, good morning, everyone. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's weird doing things again after like three or four years, and then you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we as a church family kind of walk back into this, how we think, how we're giving, how our giving is an act of our worship. And I started a long time ago, and many during COVID, to give automatically through the bank or doing it online or whatever. So then we have this period in the service where we're passing a plate, and it's like, I don't have anything to put in there unless you want, like, my Apple Pay card or something. (laughs) So we're just acknowledging that often the plate will pass. That's okay, because we know that everybody is giving and everybody is generous in their own right to the things that God is prompting them to do. But we just wanted to reintroduce that moment in the service when we recognize that giving back to God is part of our act of worship and that it is the spiritual sacrifice of our lives. Uh, to give back to God. And so we're just trying to recapture that. So we'll keep growing together in that as a family as we relearn old habits. Um, Today, uh, this Sunday is the last Sunday on our series in Ecclesiastes. Um, And I want to take this last message as an opportunity to sort of step back from the book and consider what has actually been happening uh, as we've read through it. Uh, of course, part of what has been happening over the summer is that the, the content of Ecclesiastes has been speaking directly to us and to our spiritual condition, and it's speaking to us at whatever point in our faith we happen to be walking right now, and Scripture is always doing that. But, but if we're to step back and look at the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole, I think there is a larger lesson here for us, and it's kind of interesting that the Holy Spirit would have us kind of commissioning Jesse uh, and his team on this evangelism calling that he is on right now, because I think the lesson at the end of Ecclesiastes here is a lesson on how the good news about God is meant to intersect with and engage with the human condition of all kinds of people who find themselves living under the sun. And in a way that, in that sense, Ecclesiastes is really a guide to us. Uh, We can look at Ecclesiastes and see what Solomon is doing and learn from Solomon's techniques and understand and kind of see what he's up to because he has an agenda in writing Ecclesiastes. He has a purpose in the way he's written each chapter and on each topic. And what Solomon is doing is he's showing us, in a degree, if we step back and look at it, is he showing us how one unchanging gospel or word of God and God's plan for salvation is able, even though it's one gospel, one plan, one purpose of God, at the ground level under the sun, it takes on countless, even infinite shapes in order to fit the many ways in which that message has to engage with the human heart. So, In essence, Ecclesiastes helps us understand how the gospel is meant to be shared and how we might learn how to share it more effectively. And so that's why I called this sermon the gospel of Ecclesiastes and how to share it. So what I want to consider is is the intent of Solomon and the method and the message of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And then consider how this book exegetes our culture. It contextualizes the gospel and applies the gospel effectively to the hearts that it encounters after investigating and exegeting that culture. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? It's kind of a fancy word, exegeting. What do I mean by exegeting the culture and contextualizing the gospel? Because that's what Ecclesiastes does. 
So to just remind you, let me read the paragraph from the first message on Ecclesiastes, which I'm sure all of you remember from June. <laughs> and in that very first message, that this, this paragraph sort of is describing what Ecclesiastes was going to deliver. This is what I wrote and said. Solomon is going to address the rat race of careers and wealth accumulation, the unfairness of injustice, the misappropriated political power. He's going to deal with relationships and family, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, hard work and laziness, evil and righteousness, even ways that we can make church and our religion futile. Ecclesiastes is a clear-eyed argument for the unbeliever to consider carefully what meaning they think they can get from any part of life apart from God. And in the end, how they imagine they will possibly outsmart or get victory over their inevitable death and what comes after. You will find this book doesn't pull a single punch for either the faithful or the faithless in confronting us with the reality of life, or as Solomon says, the miserable business of life God has afflicted us with. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. And if you pick up there, you realize, and as we've been going through the summer, those of you who've been with us through the whole thing know that Solomon has been exegeting his culture. He's been investigating what is going on and interpreting critically what is going on in the hearts and minds and lives of him, his own life and the life of the people around him. So as a verb, exegete means to critically examine and interpret, to draw out the true meaning. And so we are able to exegete the scripture for the truth about God, and we can also exegete our culture to understand and interpret what is true about our human experience. One of the things, one of the early things that Jesse and team have to do and have probably already been involved in is exegeting the culture of Japan. Because the culture of Japan is different than the culture of Canada. And they need to assess it and interpret it and exegete it so that they know how the gospel, which is one gospel, same message, same way to salvation for all humanity, how the gospel will intersect with the culture of Japan in general as opposed to the culture of Canada in general. And then you exegete the culture and then we're exegeting the human experience. How does the gospel impact my neighbor? in their circumstance? How does the gospel impact this situation in my friend's life? And so we have to exegete the culture and exegete our human experience in order to know that. And that's what Ecclesiastes has been brilliant at. And into that examination of culture, Solomon then shapes the hope of the gospel to fit that context so that the good news of who God is and how he is acting in love towards us comes in contact with that specific culture, that specific human condition. Because the gospel is not effective if it remains out of contact with us, with our culture, with who we actually are. To be effective, the word of God has to be brought in contact with the human condition at the level of our day-to-day -day life. The cure for our cancer is not effective if it stays locked up in the cabinet. The, the cure for our sin is not effective if it stays unread in a closed Bible or stays isolated inside the walls of churches even. And especially it is ineffective if it remains unspoken behind the lips of those who know it. We have to exegete our culture and then we have to bring the gospel to bear on it. So what's been happening as we go through Ecclesiastes is that the divine message has been deliberately contextualized or made to come in contact with the lives of everyday human beings. 
And the teacher here, Mr. Ecclesiastes, Koaleth, whatever you want to call him, the teacher is intentionally creating points of intersection that are relevant to our life under the sun. And so I propose to you this morning that Ecclesiastes is a good book to step back from and say, yeah, it's been doing a lot of things in my life, it should be, as you're reading it, but now I'm going to step back and I'm going to say, what has Solomon been up to here? And can I learn from what Solomon has done in Ecclesiastes for how I am going to share the gospel and bring the divine message in contact with the lives that I am in contact with? And I think you'll see in the concluding verses of Ecclesiastes 12 that this is exactly what Solomon has revealed. The scribe has sort of pulled back the curtain a little bit to say, this is what Solomon has been up to all along, and then hits us with the punchline at the end of the full meaning. So let's just pray as we read Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14, and see whether and what we can learn from these verses and from the whole book, for that matter. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs. Uh, that it is uh, full of wisdom for us, that as we set our hearts and our minds on it and study it, uh, that it not only transforms us, but it encourages us and teaches us how to bring the gospel to others for their transformation. And Father, even as I speak this sermon, I know that it is only your Holy Spirit that changes a heart. It is not up to us to change anyone. It is not necessarily our skill or eloquence which accomplishes your divine purposes, but The mystery is, is that you have incorporated jars of clay. You've incorporated weak people such as us into the miracle of salvation and that you have called us to participate in this with you. And so, Father, help us to be good stewards of that gift that you've given us and to learn and to be wise in how we exegete our culture, how we investigate and understand, and then how we bring the gospel to bear very specifically on the culture and the people that you bring into our path. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes 12 then, with all that introduction. See if you can hear in the verse here some of what I'm talking about. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, and he searched out, and he ranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when it all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil." Amen. So what we see here is in the introduction to this, in the first part of this paragraph, is that there's an acknowledgement that the preacher is being intentionally careful in pondering and seeking out the words that he is choosing to speak. There's an intentionality to his delivery of this message to the people that he would have reach with the hope of the gospel or the hope of God in Solomon's case. So the first thing to see here is, as we are figuring out how we are going to reach people with this hope, how do we prepare and choose our words carefully? The the word, word, comes up here a lot. He pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs, which are wise words. He sought to use delightful words and write words of truth correctly. There's a big emphasis on words here, right? 
And so he pondered and searched and sought out the right words. In other words, to be prepared. We don't just go in saying anything. We think carefully about what words are going to reach this situation. He chose delightful words. And and this is a reminder to us that the gospel doesn't sound like good news if it sounds angry or judgmental or sarcastic. When we are trying to reach people with the hope of the gospel, if we sound angry, if we sound judgmental, if we sound um, perturbed or frustrated, that is not a delightful way to deliver the gospel. So Solomon deliberately chose delightful words. He's thinking, or I would say appropriate words. What are the right words? What are the appropriate words that will engage people in their situation and not drive them away? And then we have to make sure that the words are aligned correctly to the truth. He said he sought delightful words and he strove, he sought, he pondered how to write these words of truth correctly. We want to be precise. We want to be correct when we share the hope of the gospel. We want to make sure we're actually sharing the gospel and not something else. Peter addresses this very concisely in the New Testament if we were to skip ahead to our calling as Christians and as the church in this world, he tells the church in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What do we see Peter saying? Same thing Solomon did. Be prepared, offer the hope of God, do it wisely and with gentleness and respect. Use delightful words when you do it. Right? This is the same thing. This is a template for gospel sharing. And one thing for sure we can learn from Solomon is to work at choosing words wisely. Solomon uses poetry and story and proverbs and illustrations. You remember it all from the summer. I mean, one thing Solomon cannot be accused of or Ecclesiastes can't be accused of is not being literary enough. It is a super example of literature and of carefully chosen words to accomplish a very specific purpose. Solomon was prepared to make his argument in a number of delightful, or we could say engaging ways, not forcefully, but courteously, effectively. And he was also prepared by knowing what the truth was and delivering it correctly, not saying incorrect things about God or the gospel. If we don't know the gospel, then we don't know if what we're telling people really is the gospel. And if it isn't really the gospel, then it won't help them. Good grief, the the last thing someone who is struggling under the burden of trying to live up to expectations need to hear is some message from a well-meaning Christian that says, God is ready to bless your life if you will just work hard enough to please him. That is not the gospel. That is not going to help them, okay? So it might sound kind of biblical, but if you don't get it right, it can be a greater burden than a blessing. So we need to know how to speak the words of the truth correctly. The other thing that we see here in this example of what Solomon was doing is that he was provoking a response. We're choosing our words carefully, knowing and intentionally trying to provoke a response. It says, the words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. The, the words of truth are a goad, and that almost sounds like a contradiction to what Solomon just wrote. We're, we're told to choose delightful words... Okay, I got that. Let's choose delightful words. And now we're told that they are a goad. A goad is like a sharp stick for prodding livestock. 
It's to provoke or annoy so as to stimulate some action. So these delightful words provoke, they spur. It doesn't sound delightful, but it's not a contradiction, but it's actually a mystery of the gospel, that as we speak the truth of the gospel, good news that it is, it will provoke people. They will be provoked by the message of the gospel and the good news of who God is and how we stand in relation to God and the hope that we have in God's love and salvation for us. And it should provoke them. They will go home after meeting with you and they will still be thinking about what you said when they wake up at 3 a.m. They will be provoked. They will be stimulated. They will be thinking about what does that message of the gospel as you have framed it carefully for me in my circumstance actually mean? And that's not bad news. Why does it provoke so many? Don't be disturbed when people are provoked by the gospel. Be thrilled when your gospel message provokes them. As long as it is the gospel they're provoked by and not provoked by you. There's a difference by being provoked by the gospel and being provoked by the person who's trying to deliver the gospel. Those are two different things. Don't be an annoying person. Deliver a provoking gospel. That's what Solomon would have us do. That's what Christ would have us do. Because the gospel, well applied, is provocative. So we apply the truth of God as Solomon does. It provokes a response. It hopefully provokes a life-changing response. Skillful words applied, we are told here. Well-driven, firmly fixed. In other words, well-driven words provide a foundation. They are strong. This word here for peg or tent peg or nail is used in Ezra 9, 8. It says, the Lord our God has left us a remnant and as to give us a secure hold. It's the same word. The secure hold that God has given his people within his holy place is like a nail or a tent peg. And skillfully applied words of the gospel are like a tent peg and they nail it down. They're firm against the arguments against it and they're firm in the heart of the person who hears it. So we should be skillful in how we do this. As we master the scriptures, we're able to drive them home solidly. How do we do that? We have to know the word of God and practice it. We have to understand how it applies to our lives and to the culture and conditions around it. We should be talking the gospel out with other Christians around us. Apply it into each other's lives in places like life groups or just while you're getting together for coffee. And as you apply the gospel into circumstances and lives in yourself and in others, then you will understand how to apply it skillfully to those that you encounter. The word, when it takes hold, is a firm anchor, and it will stand. And we're told that the true words are given to us by one shepherd, and we often capitalize that word in our translation, maybe talking about Solomon as the king, the king shepherd, but I think it's not out of context to understand that Solomon would understand the shepherd to be God. We get these true words from one place, from one shepherd, They are from God alone, and we have God's word in Scripture, so that's where we get our word from. So that's his method. That's what Solomon is setting out to do, and if you think back over the chapters of Ecclesiastes, you realize that's what Solomon has been doing. He's been carefully choosing words to provoke people in very specific circumstances in order to bring to them, in conclusion, the hope of God. And so I just want to sort of look at just a few, by example, some examples of this skillful exegesis of culture and gospel contextualization that Solomon has done. In chapter 1, 
The sum of human life is futile, we are told. It's of no more substance than a wisp of fog or a breath of wind. But specifically in chapter 1, Solomon assesses a common human condition. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Some people will hear Solomon say that and say, Yes, I have been trying to straighten my crooked life out for years, and I can never seem to get what is crooked straight. Or I've been watching the news at 11 for decades, and this world is more crooked by the year. Or there are many parts of my life that are empty and lacking, and I know what it means to lack friends and lack opportunity and lack health and lack security. You cannot count what isn't there. How many friends have you got? Zero. How much support do you have? Let me double count. None. Right? People feel the weight of emptiness. They see the crookedness in life. And so Solomon here is addressing the culture around him and saying, I know you see this. And then having connected with his listener on the level of their experience, Solomon begins to introduce the reality of God, who provides what is lacking, who can straighten what is crooked. Into the frame of a crooked and empty life, the good news comes. The good news of God's richness is presented. If we're talking to a friend of ours in this situation, in our own words even, we could share the gospel promise of Jesus to a friend in that situation and speak gospel to them in this way as he does in Luke. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked becomes straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's the gospel in the context of someone who is empty or who is in a crooked road. And God's gospel comes to them and says, that mountain you're facing can be brought low. That pit of despair that you are in can be brought up to level. And the gospel comes to that person who's facing that situation. This is the sound of hope to many people. They may not fully understand what this verse exactly means, and that's why we contextualize it and rephrase it and speak gospel words to people to bring them to the hope of the gospel and to the scripture eventually. They don't necessarily fully understand it, but it can be contextualized to their situation, the mountain of their marriage problems or the valley of despair they're in, the rough relationship they have with the parents, the rough road of their health lately. But they resonate with this reality, and then once we have made contact with the human condition, the gospel can make contact with them. Or in chapter 2, Solomon does it again. He exegetes the culture of intellectualism and materialism and cynicism and hedonism. You remember that sermon, hopefully, where he went through all these different philosophies of life. He examines and he exposes the insufficiency of great knowledge or great wealth or pure physical pleasure-seeking or even cynical skepticism. He, He analyzes and exegetes those cultures and says they have no ultimate satisfaction. And you probably know some people who are putting their hope in any one of or in all four of these lifestyles. You personally have probably put your hope in one of these four different philosophies. And you may still be, like all of us do, dipping our toes back into them again from time to time. But after Solomon wisely assesses and exegetes the futility of those cultures and those philosophies... Solomon then applies his good news. In verse 24 to 26, he says that enjoyment is only with God. God alone gives wisdom and knowledge and pleasure. If you're looking for wisdom and knowledge and pleasure and joy and satisfaction, God is the one that allows those things. Even to those who you think have all possession and have all pleasure, they are not permitted to enjoy it unless God gives them permission to enjoy it. 
Without God, everything under the sun is grievous and elusive, but with God, everything under the sun becomes a gift and a blessing. And after hitting dead end after dead end and not finding satisfaction, this is where the gospel finds a place to intersect those lives or intersect that culture that is despairing of not finding hope where they hope to find hope. And we, if we are wise like Solomon and are saturated in the gospel, know how to take the gospel and say there is hope and it applies specifically to you, academic. Or it applies specifically to you, pleasure seeker. Or it applies specifically to you, cynic. The same gospel applies in all contexts. I'll give you at least one more, maybe two more. We'll see how we're doing. Chapter 3, Solomon considers seven pairs of experiences that happen to everyone under the sun. You remember this. There's a time for everything. There's a time for this, a time for that, a time goes on. We've all fought and then reconciled. We've all loved and at times we've all hated Maybe still harbor hate in some areas, if we're honest. We all gain friends some days and lose friends other days. We have children and we bury parents. We are a healing presence at times, and other times we wound and tear each other down. These are things we do, and Solomon basically lays it out and says, everybody has this experience with time, that we go through this cycle of experiences. And he exegetes the human condition and the human experience. And somebody reading Solomon says, I resonate with that. Solomon gets me. He understands where my heart is at. So what do you have to say to me in my situation, Solomon? If you understand that, what do you have to say? And ultimately, Solomon comes to the conclusion of that life and says, what profit is there to the worker from that which he toils? What profit in all of this effort at life? And, you know, the guys around the bar that are listening to him talk are saying, preach it, brother. What is the profit? You're talking my language. (laughs) You, you got it. Jean-Paul Sartre, famous French philosopher of existentialism, kind of a modern-day Solomon himself, said, anything, anything would be better than the agony of mind, this creeping pain that gnaws and fumbles and caresses one and never hurts quite enough. That guy's heavy. That's deep. That's a guy who's thought really hard about how empty his life is. And, he's, and he says it really well. Right? Annie Lennox says it a little different. Annie Lennox says, All those years of creating music or trying to express something of a dark shadow and existential angst that I have felt most of my life and still feel today and not be overwhelmed by it. That's the culture. That's the human condition. That is what Solomon is exegeting. That's what he's investigating and getting to understand so that then he can bring the good news, the hope of God in contact with that culture or that human condition into the angst and into the existential pain of seeming purposeless existence that never fully profits. Solomon shifts the ground under his listeners. He makes sense of time and our feeling of futility by the acknowledgement of God. He says he has made everything appropriate in his time, and he's also set eternity in the heart of men so that man will not find out the work of God that he has done from the beginning even to the end. In other words, Solomon says the thing that you're missing is God. That's why it all seems purposeless. God has actually made everything that happens in life, everything appropriate or beautiful in its right time. He has a purpose in everything that you are experiencing. And the reason you're feeling that angst and that existential pain is because God has set eternity in your heart and he has an answer for it. And so Solomon 
reaches the people who are feeling this, and he says, there is a hope for you. You should not be surprised by how you feel, and you should be thrilled at the answer. God has done this on purpose that you might seek and find him. Or in Acts, it says, even though they might seek to find him, and yet he is near at hand. The kingdom of God is near at hand. So all those people who are stuck in the season of life, by the repetition of life, by just the drudgery and the despair and the existential angst, Solomon comes to them and says, there is an answer. You don't have to live with that dread. Chapter 4. I'm not going to do all the chapters, don't worry. Let me do chapter 4, though. Solomon exegetes the human condition of loneliness. If you remember chapter 4, he goes through the various scenarios of people who are alone and the effect of being alone and isolation and marginalization. Isolation intensifies our pain. Isolation undermines our satisfaction. Isolation erases our achievements. And so there are people that are listening to Solomon in chapter 4, and they're saying, that's me. I am alone. I am isolated. I am marginalized. What does the good news of the gospel have to say to me in my isolation? And it's the same gospel, and it's the same gospel that's reaching the academic in his futility of intellectual pursuit as will reach the person who is sitting at home alone, feeling rejected like they have no friends and nobody likes them. The same gospel reaches both. We're not preaching a different gospel. We're saying the gospel applies to every context. And the gospel meets people there with good news. You might, again, even in your own words, exegete the gospel as Jesus explains to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will give you the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to dwell with us and in us in John 14. Again, you might not use that verse explicitly. A new believer or somebody who's seeking won't understand it. But the hope of the gospel is is that Jesus understands our isolation. And he does not leave us alone. That in Christ we have a comforter. His Holy Spirit. And if that's a little too mystical, if that's not a, a step that people are ready to jump to, or maybe you're even ready to jump to, the gospel meets people with more good news. You might use your own words again to exegete the gospel as Jesus explains it to, uh, or as Paul explains it in Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You're adopted into the family of God. You are not alone. You have value and worth because you were made in the image of God, and God can adopt you as your son, as his son or daughter. And you might think, well, that's still too far out there. That's still too mystical. Well, you might convey the gospel then as it's manifest in the church. In Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That God has actually put the church together on purpose to deal with this situation of isolation. That the good news of God is is that there is a body, a family, a fellowship that is yours to enjoy. Same gospel, contextualized. And as we're going through this, you see here that each of these gospel messages are slightly different in their context. They don't all sound the same, but they all hang on the same truth. What God has set out to do in order to rescue humanity from the futility of our sin, he has done so and done specifically through Jesus Christ. But the hope, the goodness news, the good news sounds different to different people. The gospel reaches people in the situation that they're at. And that's our job. As people who are ready to give an account for the hope that's in us, we have the job that Solomon has to contextualize the gospel to the people around us. And in that way... 
Again, I said I'm not going to go through every chapter, but you can go through chapters of Ecclesiastes with kind of looking at it through this lens and say, what has Solomon done here to understand his audience and then bring the hope of God's word into that audience so that it reaches them? Because I can be talking to somebody who's lonely and talking about how the gospel rescues us from, you know, addiction to pleasure, and they're like, okay, I don't have that problem. (laughs) You know, or I can be talking to somebody who's addicted to pleasure and hedonism and talk about how, you know, the gospel rescues you from your loneliness. I'm not alone. I have a hundred people I party with. Loneliness is not my problem. You see, everybody is at a different place, and every culture is at a different place. But the gospel is contextualized to reach that place. Same gospel touches people where they are at. Okay, I'll do just one in chapter 8. Solomon exegetes, I won't even put it on the screen. Solomon exegetes the human condition of living under injustice. You think there's anybody out there that needs hope in the face of injustice? And, and, and after outlining all the ways that injustice happens to us, then the hope of justice and mercy of God is introduced. The gospel hope that God will judge and everyone will receive what is proper justice. And also the gospel hope that God supplies all that we need to bear up under injustice. That's a message that people need to hear, and that is the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to scare you by presenting to you an impossible task that is only accomplished by the wisest man on earth. You're perhaps following along with me and reading Ecclesiastes and hearing what I have to say, and you're like, yep, there's lessons there for how I share the gospel. I get it. But you're talking about Solomon, Paul. You're talking about the wisest guy on earth. How am I going to do that? Or you, you're like a professional preacher. I can't do this. You're making it sound easy, but it's not easy. And I know it sounds difficult, and it is difficult. You think, I can't exegete the culture. I don't even know what exegete means. But actually, I am confident that you can, and I am confident that you actually already do without realizing it. Most of you are doing or can do what Solomon did. Ecclesiastes is basically Solomon's diary. It's his notebook. It's Solomon speaking from his own life experience. God met Solomon in all of the darkest days and most foolish days of his life. God showed Solomon purpose and meaning and joy and hope and satisfaction in himself when Solomon couldn't find it anywhere else in his wealth, in his women, or even in his wisdom. And Solomon wrote down what he saw going on in his own heart and his own life and in the lives of those that were close to him. And so if you are a Christian, then the good news of God and his gospel has already intersected with your own life at some point. And it came to you in a form that you needed to hear it and when you needed to hear it. And the gospel resonated with you in a very specific way that you responded to some of which Ecclesiastes may have reminded you of. But it was personal to you, and it came to you just the way you needed it. And so start there. Exegete your own gospel experience. Examine and interpret your own experiences and how the good news of what the Word of God has to say has intersected with your life then and since and provoked change in you. Because you will learn from your own experience that you were going through this, or you were going through that, or you thought wrongly about this, or you were struggling with this, and then the Word of God came to you as you needed to hear it, and it provoked change in you, and it changed you, and you have just exegeted the human condition and exegeted Scripture to apply it. Now go and apply it to others that are sharing in, in the experience that you have. 
So start with your own life, how the gospel brought hope into your marriage, how it brought hope into your striving for affirmation, how it brought hope into your illness, what the word of God did to overcome your fear or your anxiety or whatever it was that you faced, and take that exegesis, that investigation, that interpretation of that experience and use it to exegete the gospel or to apply it to others in the same situation. That's where you start. You start by studying it in your own life. That's all Solomon did. And he ended up with Ecclesiastes, the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you do that, you'll end up with new brothers and sisters in Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, why does it matter? I'll conclude on that. The conclusion, good thing to conclude on. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Why do this? Paul, why are you up here saying I need to do this? Why does it matter? Why do I have to strive to present the gospel carefully, skillfully, delightfully to those around me? Why do I need to exegete the culture and exegete the human condition and get the gospel in contact with it? It matters because this applies to every person. Reverence God. That is our purpose and our joy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were created for God's glory. We were created to replicate and multiply glory across all of humankind. And so doing, discover joy. And that applies to every person. The reason missions exist is because worshiping God doesn't. If God was fully glorified and fully worshipped in all corners of the world and in every corner of every heart, we wouldn't have to do missions. We do missions because God isn't being glorified. The purpose is that God be glorified, and we're just trying to replicate glorifiers. What is also true of every person is that our ultimate human condition is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that also applies to every person. We have all rebelled against our created purpose. We have elevated other gods and idols, chiefly ourselves, to sit in the place that only God should sit in our lives. And so this is important. It matters because everyone is supposed to be glorifying God and everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And it also matters because what is also true of every person is that all are justified only by the gift of the grace of God. It's not by working, it's not by having it owed to us somehow, by earning it, but by being given as a gift through the work of Jesus. And so we need to share that. And that also applies to every person. There are not different ways that different people are justified. Everyone is justified and made safe at the judgment by only one method, accepting the mercy and grace from God as a gift provided to us by the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so Ecclesiastes becomes for us a spur, a, provoke, a provocation. Even though the words are delightful, it should provoke us to have the same heart that Solomon has, which is the heart of God. To look at the world around us and say, I need to understand my culture. I need to understand the human condition that my friends are in. I need to understand my own human condition. And I need to be wise and delightful and learned and understand how to apply the gospel. This is all of our calling. This isn't just the calling of evangelists. It isn't just the calling of missionaries. It's the calling of everyone who knows the good news of the gospel. As Peter said, everyone, be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. And one of the ways you can be ready is to watch and see and learn from Solomon and what he did in Ecclesiastes. 
Chapter by chapter, he exegeted the culture and the human condition around him, and he said, I see, I know what you're feeling and what you're going through, and here's the Word of God, and here's how they connect. And that's what we need to be doing as Christians. That's what, that's what we are called to do. And trust me, I know you can do it. I think you're a little bit afraid that you can't, but you can do it. Let me pray for you right now. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this lesson from Solomon that he kind of peels back the curtain on at the end of the chapter and says, this is what the teacher did. He chose delightful words and he saw it and he pondered to be able to say the truth correctly in the right way to the right people. And Father, this is our challenge. This is the challenge of the church from the beginning to understand and interpret the culture in which we exist and then to bring the gospel, the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ over our sin, bring that gospel good news into contact with that culture and that human condition. And when that gospel meets that human condition in a way that's understandable and contextualized and people can get it, the miracle of salvation happens. And so, Father, we know that we don't do that we trust you entirely. It's your wisdom. It's your word. It's, it's, the, you know, it's the people that you bring across our paths. You ultimately change people's hearts, not us. But for some mysterious reason, you've included us in this incredible work of salvation of yours, this work of redemption you have shared with your weak and faltering church. And so weak and faltering as we may be, Father, we embrace it, and we want to be good stewards of that mission that you've given us that we would bring the hope of the gospel in direct contact with our friends and family and the culture that we find ourselves in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.